Welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carrie is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carrie is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please welcome your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Functional Medicine Radio Show, the only internet radio show dedicated to giving you real solutions to improve your health. Not only are they real solutions, but they're natural solutions as well, because as you know, the one and only true wealth you have is your health. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc, and I'm committed to helping you find the root cause of your health problem, fix the cause with natural treatments so you can feel normal again and live your life to the fullest. Now today's topic is all about digestion and digestion issues and specifically SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. I'm so very excited about this week's show because I have a guest back on for the second time. His name is Dr. Norm Robillard. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Now Dr. Robillard is founder of the Digestive Health Institute and he is a leading gut health expert. He specializes in functional gastrointestinal disorders, so things like heartburn, acid reflux, GERD, IBS, and of course also SIBO and dysbiosis to help his clients transition from drug and antibiotic-based treatments to his fast-track diet and other holistic solutions. Dr. Norm, thank you so much for being my special guest today on this episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. Hi, Dr. Carey, and thanks for having me once again on your show. So, Dr. Norm, it's been a couple of years, I think, since we spoke last. We'll have to dig through the podcast, (laughs) all of our podcast archives, to find our other interview together, because on our other interview, we also touched on SIBO, but that interview was really uh, focused on GERD and reflux and heartburn. It was. So for the listeners out there, I'll I'll dig that up and put that link in our podcast notes. So if you want to listen to that. Um, but Dr. Norm, you and I, we see patients in our practices, a lot of them coming in with all kinds of different digestive issues. I don't know about you, but in my practice, a lot of times they've seen their family doctors multiple times. They've seen the gastroenterologist multiple times they've had all of the tests, they've been scoped up and down, and have been told everything is normal. So can you talk today about SIBO? So some of our listeners know a little bit about SIBO, but there's still a lot of people that have no idea what SIBO is. So what is SIBO and why should we care? <laughs> sure. And, uh, and basically you mentioned what SIBO stands for, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, Before I talk about SIBO, I generally like to just talk about gut microbes, uh, just to get everybody on the same page. Sure. Um, You know, why do we have these bacteria in our gut? Um, Like all other animals on the planet, we all have bacteria in our gut. And in our case, we have about 100 trillion bacteria. Um, And it's a diverse population from up to 1,000 different species, and they mostly reside in our large intestine where they turn fiber and other undigested carbs into fats that nourish us. 
you know, you hear the word, the term short chain fatty acids. Well, those we consume those. Our body consumes those for fuel. Uh, but sometimes uh, things become unbalanced for a variety of factors that we'll probably get into today. Uh, and the bacteria from our large intestine migrate uh, into our small intestine through the ileocecal valve, and they grow to sometimes very high numbers there. And the small intestine shouldn't have that much bacteria there. So when you end up with over even 10,000 cells per mil, it's considered, you know, that you have SIBO. And, of course, the, the more bacteria in the early part of your small intestine is, is a worse situation because that's where all of our critical structures exist that allow us to digest food. You know, these hair-like microscopic projections called villi and microvilli, um, and they're associated with, uh, with some additional digestive enzymes that are released from the tips of the microvilli. So it's delicate structures, delicate enzymes, and then you have these bacteria coming in that are, that are supposed to be in the large intestine. They produce toxins. They produce um, acidic end products so they can change the pH. And one of the important things that often gets overlooked is they produce proteolytic enzymes. You know, don't forget bacteria are trying to break down some proteins for their own nitrogen needs, right? The amino acids and proteins have nitrogen. And so they're scavenging for proteins. And if they run into these enzymes being released from the tips of our microvilli, they'll, they'll digest those. And so you get into a situation where you have, you have a lot of damage and not absorbing your nutrients as well, which feeds additional bacteria. And it's this cycle of uh, bacterial growth in the small intestine, damage, you know, more nutrients available. And that was first described by Elaine Gutschel in her book, uh, Breaking the Vicious Cycle. Now, when all of this is happening, uh, you can also have some pretty dramatic symptoms. And one of those that we talked about uh, when we spoke last was acid reflux and GERD. And that was a lot of research I did connecting that condition with SIBO and, and, and overgrowth of bacteria. Uh, but you can also have just some general symptoms like abdominal pain, cramps, bloating. You can have altered bowel habits, so diarrhea, constipation, um, nausea, and even things like, you know, dehydration and fatigue that you might not associate with SIBO, you know, at first glance. Uh, but the real problem is, beyond those symptoms, if you don't address this, and I mean, I don't want to scare people, but long term, there can be some complications of SIBO. Um, one people, many people are familiar with, uh, people that I work with, they come in, they've lost a lot of weight, so weight loss. Uh, some people suffer from steatorrhea. Um, basically, they're not digesting fats very well. They can be anemic. Uh, they can suffer from bone pain and even fractures, right? Because when you're not absorbing nutrients as well, you're not absorbing calcium and magnesium and things like that as well either. Uh, and then another big area is leaky gut syndrome, which can lead to autoimmune conditions, autoimmune reactions. So that's one reason we should care, right? Because these long-term complications but I think another reason to care um, is just because of the number of people that suffer with SIBO. Uh, I think it's just very much under-recognized as a, as a big problem. But when you look at the individual conditions that are associated with SIBO, right? My own research on GERD, uh, Pemintel and other this, the research on IBS, uh, Crohn's is, is tightly linked to SIBO celiac disease, Right? You can imagine with celiac, you have damage to the small intestine, you're going to have the likelihood of a lot of nutrients in SIBO. Uh, all of these autoimmune conditions, rosacea, fibromyalgia, 
there's chronic fatigue uh, syndrome and a variety of liver diseases. Uh, so when you add up the incidences for those conditions and more, um, you come to a number that's pretty dramatic in terms of, you know, I, I tend to look at U.S. populations and I, I calculate that about half of the population in the U.S. suffers with SIBO at least at some point in their lives. And I think other countries in the Western world probably have similar uh, rates. So, you know, there is some reason to be concerned. Yeah, and I guess from my own personal experience working with patients, um, one of the really tricky things about SIBO, and I'm sure that you see this as well, is that you could have SIBO, but not have any digestive complaints at all. Feel like that part, that system of your body is fine, but have other issues going on, like anxiety or anemia or skin issues or autoimmune disease. And that's where it, it starts to get more tricky to try and you know, find the cause, find the cause, fix the cause to feel normal again. Yeah, I mean, that's a good, that's a good point. I mean, most people that I work with end up, you know, they do have some, some GI symptoms as well. Um, I think in the cases where they don't, it might go under the radar for a good bit until for one reason or another, they end up having like a hydrogen breath test and they're diagnosed with it. Um, I do think if they have a bad enough case of it, they, they will have some GI symptoms as well. Yeah, and for the listeners out there, Dr. Norm just mentioned the breath test, usually with lactulose or glucose, or sometimes both, but it's a, it's a breath test that can be done at home. So if you've never done a breath test, then you've, you've never been assessed for SIBO. And, and I don't know about you, Dr. Norm, but up here in Canada, the medical system is quite, quite conventional. And uh, the vast majority of, of doctors that I consult with have never heard of SIBO. It's, it's really uh, surprising. I, but I know it's true, even in the, in the U.S. Um, you know, I mean, when you look at the training of a medical doctor, I mean, the training takes place through, you know, medical school and then some additional training in the clinic. And then they're in practice. And so... Um, and there's so many areas of medical research to keep up on, and this is another one. And so um, I think it's up to people like us to really um, get the word out there that this is a common condition and we need, you know, better testing. So more um, breath testing, more standardized uh, breath testing. Uh, they put together some uh, convention guidelines in the U.S. last year, I think. Uh, yeah, I think they came out in 2017 to help standardize the testing. So... Um, but, you know, obviously more work needs to be done and even not just SIBO in the different uh, underlying causes. And I know we, we plan on spending a little time on that today. But one in particular that's really problematic is uh, some people have um, very low stomach acid for a variety of reasons. And just getting uh, a test, the Heidelberg acid test, to test for that is very challenging. Very few facilities do it. And so until some other endoscopic equivalent of that uh, smart pill test uh, is, is validated, um, it can be challenging for people to just diagnose something that's very basic. Definitely. So, so in the grand scheme of things, I know for my patients, um, testing and finding SIBO, well, that's one thing. And then treating it is another thing 
but really getting to the root underlying cause, that's, that's on a whole other plane. Because as you know, SIBO can be treated, the infection can be gone, but if you never get to the root cause of it, the odds of it coming back are pretty good. So let's kind of focus right now on really getting to the root underlying causes. So you, you mentioned a couple of things already, the ileocecal valve, and you mentioned low stomach acid. So um, I don't know if you want to expand on either of those two, and then also just, you know, talk about some of the other underlying causes to think about. Yeah, well, let's just go through some of those. Um, you know, there's a lot, and this area continues to expand. It's an area of active research. Uh, this ileocecal valve, you know, we talked about, well, the bacteria get back through that valve. But why? Well, there was some research done a year or two ago that showed that the ileocecal valve pressure, the pressure of the sphincter, how tightly it's staying closed, um, is lower in people that have SIBO. So, you know, why is that? Um, and, and I have a couple of theories about that. I'd be glad to talk to you about any time. But it's, it's a new one. And so, uh, and it's not that easy to test for. You, you can use a smart pill uh, technology for that, one that measures pressure differences, you know, at the end of the small intestine and then right at the beginning of the large intestine on both sides of this valve. Um, you can use a, like a manometry type of test where you literally have to snake a pressure-sensitive tube, as you would a colonoscopy, all the way up to the top of the large intestine and stick it through the ileocecal valve and measure the pressure directly. So it's been done both ways, and the pressure's lower for people that have SIBO. So, um, yeah, these continue to expand. But let's just go through um, some of these specific uh, underlying causes. And, you know, when I think about these, and, and we can talk about some in more detail, I tend to think about them in terms of what is the dysfunction in our natural defense mechanisms against SIBO? Because we have many defense mechanisms so that it doesn't happen. So what is breaking down? So let's go through some of those. Uh, one of the big ones you hear about a lot is motility problems. Uh, and Pemintel's group at Otsita Sinai has done a lot of work on this migrating motor complex. You know, food, this is being digested you know, these, uh, these uh, regulated muscular contractions that keeps food moving through the digestive tract. Well, motility problems, that somehow breaks down. And there can be a lot of reasons. It can be caused by scarring, um, and that's if for somebody that had uh, Crohn's disease or scleroderma, for instance, uh, can be due, due to surgery. Um, Hashimoto's can be a factor because uh, hypothyroidism has been uh, linked to constipation. Uh, diabetes um, drug use, and even gastrointestinal infections where you literally get food poisoning or you get infected with E. coli or Shigella, uh, one of those types of bacteria that make a certain toxin called cytolethal distending toxin B that causes an autoimmune reaction against a, pr a human protein called vinculin, which is important in motility. So you can see how these things are a bit of a rabbit hole, but the more research is done and the, if we as practitioners can stay organized with all of this information, um, we can basically try to try to rule out as many of these as we can and then look for diagnostic ways to focus in on, on what's left and confirm uh, which underlying causes are in play and then address those. Uh, so we talked about uh, low stomach acid was another one. Um, and that, you know, there's a number of causes. One 
people will come to me and they're on proton pump inhibitors and they're like, I wonder if I have low stomach acid. I'm like, you don't have to wonder, you do. That's what those drugs do. Uh, but also somebody with a long-term H. pylori infection, uh, they can develop atrophic gastritis, so they have a loss of functionality. Um, so you can look at the independent risk factors or, as we mentioned before, you can just try to find a place that gives the Heidelberg acid test or an equivalent and be tested. And then you'll know. You won't have to just be randomly popping betaine uh, HCL pills and, and seeing if it helps. That's, that's one approach, but you can actually figure this out definitively. Uh, another one is immune deficiency, um, you know, and there's a, it's not as common, but there are a lot of causes, drugs, HIV infection, uh, common variable immunodeficiency, CBID, you know, that's a, a, a somewhat rare uh, genetic condition, but when people have it, they don't make antibodies, and it's a, it's a problem. Uh, one of the bigger ones, I think, is digestive enzyme deficiency, and, you know, uh, there's some research out there that suggests that, that maybe things like pancreatitis or at least pancreatic insufficiency is underdiagnosed. We know people with cystic fibrosis don't release digestive enzymes properly. Um, and now we know that gene copy number for a protein in your saliva called amylase, salivary amylase, varies dramatically person to person. So one person, depending on where their genes evolved, they may have 60% of the saliva as amylase, and they have no trouble digesting starch. Somebody else may have many fewer gene copies and have very little amylase. Um, but the nice thing about the digestive enzyme connection is there are various um, ways to uh, supplement for that. And also something as simple as eating slowly and chewing well will help if you do have low amylase levels in your saliva. Uh, so that's one to look at. Um, Anytime somebody's been on a lot of antibiotics, and, and what's the defense mechanism that's breaking down? Our own microbiota, right, that helps protect us against SIBO. If you use a lot of antibiotics, you're decimating that population. Uh, we talked about ileocecal valve. Um, uh, liver problems is one. Uh, people that have, you know, cirrhosis or uh, uh, alcoholics have a, lot, a big problem with SIBO. Uh, it's involved in di a lot of aspects of digestion and bile production and recycling. Uh, so that's one, something things people don't always think about. But if somebody has cirrhosis or liver cancer, you need to look at that. Um, and then one that nobody ever talks about that I put on my list, and that's just carbohydrate intolerance. That as we get older or anything changes, for instance, the digestive enzymes, that we don't tolerate as many uh, carbohydrates. And we more easily malabsorb those, and those are the preferred food of all these bacteria. So for the listeners out there, see, you get a really good understanding now that, as I was saying earlier, testing and diagnosing SIBO is relatively easy. It's a breath test. Then treating it, you know, sometimes it's easy, sometimes it gets tricky, depends on the patient, but really getting to the root underlying cause, that's really where we want to go to try and maximize your health and prevent SIBO from recurring. So, um, yeah, let's talk about carbohydrate intolerance. So I know Dr. Mark Hyman speaks a lot about carbohydrate intolerance, and, and it, there's different tests that can be done for that. Do you want to talk about um, testing and then in diet as well, and, and why, is carbo why is carbohydrate intolerance so bad for SIBO? <clears throat> Yeah, well, first of all, um, 
you know, back in the day, I mean, years and years ago, nobody really knew about SIBO except perhaps in a couple of cases when somebody had, you know, they used to do intestinal surgery where they would leave blind loops where the bacteria could collect. And so that was, it was called small bowel overgrowth at the time. But other than that, it really wasn't considered much in terms of the functional GI disorders. But what was um, well studied for many years was carbohydrate intolerance. So you can go back uh, to the early 1900s to look at lactose intolerance. Um, and it makes sense because uh, if you're a Northern European, you have a 90% chance of, of being lactose tolerant because uh, you know there was a mutation and the lactase gene is stuck in the on position after weaning. And so they, as adults, can break down lactose well. A lot of people in the rest of the world uh, don't. And so lactose, while if you don't have the lactase enzyme, humans can't break it down. Bacteria can break it down really quickly. And so you can have, if you're lactose intolerant and have a latte, you might need to get to the toilet in 20 minutes because it's a simple sugar and it's very easy to break down. Other carbohydrates can be more complex and so you may not have symptoms uh, for some time afterwards. Uh, But getting back to your original question, to test for intolerance to specific carbohydrates, um, you can do a breath test just like you would with lactulose or glucose, but instead just do it with the uh, carbohydrate that you suspect is a problem. And a lot of companies um, do test not just with lactulose and some with glucose, but also they will use specific sugars like lactose, and they'll also use um, fructose is a common one, and they will give you a breath test just like they would with lactulose. It will tell you if you're malabsorbing um, those specific sugars. Technically, you could do it with starch or fiber as well, but it would, um, you know, you'd have to customize it a bit on the fiber because it's a little harder to ferment, takes a little more time, and it's a complex uh, group of, of fiber. So you could be tested. I think what, with, with the fast-track diet, right, I designed this for SIBO and, and dysbiosis. And instead of focusing too much on, on the SIBO testing. Yeah, you can get a SIBO test, you can get a test for individual carbohydrates, but we have a three-pillar approach. And, and one part of that, the first part, is basically removing all of, the, all of the, not removing, but limiting. It's not an elimination diet. It's a quantitative diet. You use a point system to, to lower the amount of all fermentable types of carbohydrates that are hard to digest. So um, while, right, dextrose or glucose, if you had, you can buy that at an Indian store or a brewery supply, it's not as sweet as sucrose, but it's much easier to absorb. So that's not as limited, right? It's, it's low or, or no points. But other foods are higher points. So here's the five that we focus on. And, and you'll, you know, recognize some from our conversations in the past and, and what people are talking about, but other ones I'm getting so much attention, but here's some that doctors agree on, right? Lactose intolerance. We talked about since the early 1900s. Does eliminating lactose or taking a lactase tablet work? Yes. It's been many studies on this dating back, you know, 100 years. Uh, Fructose intolerance, while it's somewhat somewhat more recent in the 80s, um, it's now well-studied, well-known. Doctors agree. If you're fructose intolerant, avoiding sweets and fruits that contain a lot of fructose will really help. And these things are durable responses. They know now, especially with lactose and fructose, you can go out two or three and 
And one study for lactose was five years. If you limit that thing that you're intolerant to, it's a durable response. It won't come back. There's no resistance. So that's really a, a great thing about that. Sugar alcohols are the same. Um, there's a, a couple good pieces on the FDA.gov website about sugar alcohols, even how much, you know, how many sh- uh, sugar alcohols like sorbitol, xylitol, or mannitol will lead to symptoms. Um, so doctors agree on those. What's a little more confusing with carbohydrate intolerance, to me, it, it's not confusing to me, but what surprises me how much confusion there is, is when it comes to foods like legumes, leeks, whole wheat, oats, they have a lot of dietary fibers and resistant starch. And this is where (laughs) there's a lot of discrepancies between opinions, but most doctors and researchers and a lot of bloggers really feel like more of of dietary fiber and resistant starch is better, that we're starving our poor microbiota and we need to feed them more of these so-called prebiotics which by definition means something that promotes beneficial microorganisms in the gut. But here's the, here's the issue I have with those two. In, if somebody's digestion is working perfectly fine, they can consume a good bit of fiber and resistant starch with these foods we talked about, leeks and legumes and wheat, oats. And these molecules will not be broken down in the small intestine if they don't have SIBO. Um, and then they're broken down in the large intestine where all these bacteria like bifidobacteria, species of Clostridia, um, Bacteroides. Uh, you know, when I was at Tufts, I used to work on Bacteroides fragilis. That's one of the most populous and important, you know, uh, microbes in our gut. Bacteroides theta iota omicron is also a very metabolically diverse species. And they can break down these complex carbs and everything's great. But here's the problem, Carrie. With SIBO... We talked about bacteria from the large intestine migrating to the small intestine. Well, what's migrating? Bacterial strains that are breaking down these complex carbohydrates. So now in SIBO, you've got the bacteria that can attack those fibers and resistant starch and and provoke symptoms. So that's why the fast-track diet limits not only lactose, fructose, and sugar alcohols, but also fiber and resistant starch, at least until your symptoms are in the condition and your health uh, under um, your symptoms are under control and your health um, improves. Then you can experiment with any of these, but um, that's why we, um, we're basically in line with the um, textbook of primary and acute care medicine on the chapter on intestinal gas, recommends limiting all five of these carbohydrate types. And, and I agree with that. And there's, there's evidence in the literature that, you know, we can talk about sometimes, but I I think just limiting all of them to begin with, whether or not you do employ some specific diagnostics, just until you, you know, you want to get things straightened out and you want to get clarity. And it's hard to do that when you're in the throes of, of SIBO. It really is. And using the dietary approaches can be tricky. So as you were saying, with your fast track diet, uh, patient implements that for a period of time until they find significant relief of their symptoms. And then they slowly add foods back in bit by bit to see what they can tolerate. Is it, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think that's a common strategy. I think the only thing I'd add is that a lot of approaches and practitioners, they, they, they're so worried about depleting the microbes and not feeding them that they really want to jump to that next step. We need to quickly add things back in. We're starving them. 
I just don't agree oh, with that. Oh, yeah, at all. you're right. I, I agree yeah. with you. Yeah. Take a slow approach. Yeah. Take it slow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because otherwise the patient, their SIBO might come right back. Yeah. And long term, as your small intestine heals, as all of these mechanisms of control, this bacterial overgrowth improve and heal, you will become less tolerant to these carbohydrates and your diet will be much more flexible. But you do need to give it a good bit of time. I'm talking six months, a year or longer. I, I think um, for some practitioners out there, like you said, they worry about the patient being on a very limited diet a very restrictive diet for a period of time and that that could potentially create other issues. Um, but I guess the reality is to think about with any of these diets, including the fast track diet, there's still a lot of uh, variety of foods that you can eat. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, just with the fast track diet as an example, um, yes, you, you, it, you use this thing called the fermentation potential calculation that I developed. It uses the glycemic index and the nutritional facts uh, for any food, and you can do this calculation. And in the books and in our Fast Track Diet mobile app, we, we list hundreds and hundreds of the, the values for food, different foods. But you can do the calculation yourself as well. Um, but what you really want to do is, is, is really pull the reins in on these five types of carbohydrates we talked about. But what's left? Well, first of all, any any animal-based foods, so proteins and fats and beef and pork and chicken and so any any animal, seafood and fish, especially fatty fish, um, is fine. And then most vegetables are actually pretty low in these FP points because they don't have that many um, carbohydrates uh, and they don't have that much starch. It's only some of the more starchy uh, vegetables uh, that you need to you need to worry about. Um, you know, legumes uh, have a lot of starch and fiber. Um, you want to be a little careful with corn and yams. You know, you're starting to get some fermentable material, but most green vegetables you can eat quite a bit of them. Yeah, and I guess um, for the listeners out there that are are already kind of familiar with SIBO and some of the diets out there that. There are a lot of similarities between a low-carb diet or a ketogenic diet and like the low FODMAP diet and the fast-track diet. So there's things that they have in common, but then there are some differences. So Dr. Norm, if you can just kind of uh, explain some of those differences. Sure. And, you know, first of all, with, with these different diets, most of them weren't, uh, you know, developed specifically for, for SIBO like the fast-track diet was, but um, but they're really um, helpful approaches, and it's, they're, they're great steps in the right direction. So my goal here isn't in any way to, um, you know, criticize other diets, but when it comes to limiting these five types of carbohydrates, and, and it's not just me, it's, the, it's this textbook of primary and acute care medicine. I really believe you need to look at that whole family. Not all the diets do. And so that's one of the ways that I look at these diets. If they, if they do, if they don't, um, I, I worry that that could um, not be a perfect solution. So um, let's look at, you know, one of the best ones in, in, in one regard is the elemental diet, right? Because, uh, and that's, you know, been known for years to be, you know, to promote bowel arrest, which essentially means not feeding the bacteria very much at all, because all of the food groups are pre-digested carbohydrates are represented by glucose, which is already broken down and very easy to absorb quickly. 
Uh, proteins are broken down to amino acids. Fats are broken down to fatty acids. Um, so it does limit the amount of fermentable carbohydrates available to bacteria. Um, now, it doesn't taste great. Uh, you know, some people recommend being under a doctor's care when, you, when you're on it. And so while it is quite effective, there was a study, you know, about 13 years ago, um, again, by, by Pemintel, Cedar Sinai, the guy's prolific in his research, uh, showed that it was quite effective. Um, but it's only meant to be on, uh, you're only meant to be on that diet for a couple of weeks. And unless you really have problems, that sometimes it looks extended to three weeks. But then you do need to transition to a whole food uh, diet. So let's, let's talk about some of those. Uh, Lane Gottschall, one of, one of my personal heroes, you know, the specific carb diet, uh, it does limit many fermentable carbohydrates uh, and most uh, starches across the board. It uh, doesn't specifically limit fiber, and it doesn't re- limit some forms of fructose-containing uh, sugars like honey and fruit and fruit juices. Um, Low-starch diet is what it says. It limits uh, basically starches across the board, which is, again, I think that's one of the biggest problems. And so a diet that limits that is a great idea. Um, It doesn't limit lactose or fructose or fiber or sugar alcohols that I'm aware of. Um, Low-carb diet, something I've written about myself, and it was when I first discovered my improvement in acid reflux. It was on a ketogenic low-carb diet. Uh, So it is absolutely a great uh, approach. Um, the diet doesn't list uh, fiber or sugar alcohols, um, and it does limit other easier-to-digest carbohydrates such as um, glucose. So we mentioned you could use dextrose on the, on the fast-track diet as a sweetener. Um, you can also consume uh, sticky rice or jasmine rice, which have a low FP value because they have a high glycemic index. Um, on the fast-track diet, you, you wouldn't have that on a low-carb diet. Um, and just a note there, in the fast-track diet, we're not, we're not telling people to load up on, on high glycemic index rices. Uh, we recommend maybe a half a cup with dinner for somebody that wanted and can tolerate carbohydrates in the diet. Um, if you go too crazy on the carbohydrates, you, you can have other problems, you know, metabolic disorders and prediabetes. So just a quick note there. Um, FODMAP diet is uh, it's a very good approach, and one thing I like about this is it's uh, actually got some traction in the clinic, so it's out in front in terms of being widely studied, which is a great thing to see. Um, however, this approach, while it limits these fermentables, what they call oligodiamonosaccharides and polyols, which is another name for sugar alcohols, it doesn't limit fiber or resistant starch, and it does include a lot of sucrose and sweets. So I think some room for improvement there. Uh, paleo diet, uh, what could you say about that? It's still evolving, I guess. It's a bit of a pun there. But it does, uh, doesn't really limit resistant starch or fiber. And also naturally occurring sugars and, and sugar alcohols uh, and, and fructose from fruits, even though a lot of versions of paleo diet it recommends you eat things like that in season, which would make more sense. But, of course, you know, these things are available 24-7 now, so you've got to be a little careful. Uh, but the fast-track diet, um, it, was, it was developed for SIBO. Uh, it is the only diet that quantitatively limits all five types of these fermentable carbs. And, um, and it includes, as I mentioned, I think, uh, pro-digestion behaviors and practices to, to optimize digestion and also this piece on, on identifying and addressing underlying causes. 
Yeah, thank you so much for explaining all of those differences because I get those questions a lot in practice. And um, I know we just have a few minutes left and there's, gosh, there's so much more we could talk about. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, to but, get together again. Yeah. Um, but is there anything that uh, we've not spoken about in this uh, podcast interview that you think is important to mention? Well, you know, one thing that we could do, and we could do it pretty quickly, is maybe provide just an example of what are is what are some high and what are some low FP foods? Yes. Because that, I think, putting those side by side, I think it helps explain the concept behind the fast track diet. Okay, so let's do that. Yeah. Um, so, and when I think of these comparisons, I like to think of why. Why are some low in, in points and some high in points? What you know, yes, it's based on the glycemic index, an actual test, a measurement in people. And so it's a value that I calculate from from facts that are out there. I don't make up this value. But I like to think about why. So let's just look at some of these and see if we can figure out why. The first two, let's compare a couple rices. Uh, basmati rice. If you have one half cup of basmati rice, that's not that much rice. The FP calculation is 10 grams. And, and to put that in perspective, 30 grams of undigested carbohydrates, or 30 grams of FP, will allow bacteria to produce 10 liters of gas. So this half a cup of basmati's rice, basmati rice has 10 grams, so it allows bacteria to produce 3.3 liters of gas. If you, instead of having basmati rice, had a half a cup of Asian sticky rice, it has one gram of FP, so 10 times less. So instead of 3.3 liters of gas, you've got 0.33. So it's a big difference. And why is that? Well, basmati rice has a lot of resistant starch, uh, a type of starch called amylopectin. It's much harder to break down, whereas Asian sticky rice has no amylose. So I think I said amylose for basmati, right? It's the linear, hard-to-digest amylose starch. Asian sticky rice has amylopectin and no amylose. And amylopectin is a, is a fluffy branched uh, starch that's very easy to digest quickly. So you can see what a big difference it makes when you use this value. Um, look at a couple of fruits. A half of banana, a banana has 10 grams of FP. It's higher if it's a green banana. Um, cantaloupe, on the other hand, a half cup of cantaloupe has only 3 grams of FP. So you can see you can save some points by choosing different foods. Uh, French fries... French fries made from half of a potato, 10 grams FP, right? 3.3 liters of gas. A red baked potato, half of that is 2 grams. So there's a, there can be a big, big difference. Um, so, you know, some generalities. We, mo we talked about most vegetables are low if you avoid some of the reals, not having too much of the starchy ones. And if you have the starches, stick to the ones that, that have the low FP values. Uh, limit wheat-based pastas. Uh, rice pastas are lower in points. Uh, and you would also want to limit most legumes. They're very high in uh, FP points. So, you know, that's a little bit of a window into some foods and just showing you how powerful this calculation is in, in terms of, of fermentable material that leads to a lot of gas. And I'm so glad you used the example with the rice because a lot of patients, when they think of um, low carbohydrate or eliminating all grains, uh, a lot of them feel uh, deprived, right? And they they need to have a little bit of something. And of course, we think white rice is usually hypoallergenic. And and so using that as an example 
um, so excellent because our listeners can get an idea of the difference that that can make just at one simple change. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a really powerful lens to look at foods through. And, and um, I mean, now in the Fast Track Diet mobile app where we're doing an update, uh, we'll have over a thousand foods. So um, you can look up a lot of these, but you can also, there's a calculator in the mobile app. And you can also, if you just Google FP calculator, there's one on our website that just Googling FP calculator will take you right there. And you can you can check out some of these calculations yourself. Perfect. Dr. Norm, how can our listeners find out more about you? And can you mention your books again? Sure. Well, the the books that we've talked about um, in the last uh, time we met was Fast Track Digestion Heartburn, uh, specifically on this new idea about how what causes acid reflux. And the one that's more focused directly on IBS and SIBO is Fast Track, T-R-A-C-T, Digestion, IBS. Um, and so that's very much focused in on, on, on IBS and SIBO. Uh, you know, you can also go to um, digestivehealthinstitute.org uh, to download a free ebook to read about the Fast Track Diet. Um, but we have, a, we have a mission, too, I wouldn't mind uh, uh, mentioning, if you don't mind. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, and that's to, you know, it's our goal to inspire 10 million people with these various functional gastrointestinal disorders slash SIBO to get off of drugs and antibiotics and onto more holistic and dietary solutions. And so to join that group and participate in, in some discussions with recipes and all that, that people can go to Fast Tracked Diet official Facebook group. And so it's easy to find on Facebook. Um, also, if they're interested in the Fast Track Diet mobile app, uh, as I said, we're releasing a new update next month. Even if people got the app now, they would get the free uh, refresh next month. But um, that and and it will be server based. Has a lot of tools to help you implement the diet. And for that, if you want to check that out, go to fasttrackeddiet.com. So for the listeners out there, I'll make sure all of those links are in the podcast notes so that you can easily find all of those resources. Dr. Norm, thank you so much for being my special guest today. Again, this has been another awesome interview. (laughs) I appreciate you having me, and I really like talking to you about this stuff. All right, that wraps up this very special episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show with Dr. Norman Robillard. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for tuning in today. And I'd like to invite you back next time for another episode of the Functional Medicine Radio Show. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, the Functional Medicine Doc. Have a great week, everyone. You've been listening to the Functional Medicine Radio Show with your host, Dr. Carrie Drizga, known internationally as the Functional Medicine Doc. Dr. Carey is committed to helping patients find the root cause of their health problems and fixing the cause with natural treatments so they can feel normal again. Dr. Carey is the founder of Functional Medicine Ontario and is the author of the hit book, Reclaim Your Energy and Feel Normal Again. Please tell your friends about the Functional Medicine Radio Show, and we'll see you next week with more from Dr. Carey.